0: Corinthians this morning um, because it's New Year's Eve and I thought it'd be wise for us to to set our mind um, on how we can live for Christ better in the year ahead. And we have a, a good tradition as Americans of making resolutions for the new year. And arguably the most famous resolutions that were made were those by Jonathan Edwards when he was 18 He began to make a list of resolutions, and I want to direct your attention to his 63rd resolution, which is illustrative of this passage that we'll look at this morning. He writes this, supposition that there never was to be but one individual in the world at any one time who was properly a complete Christian, in all respects of a right stamp, having Christianity always shining in its true luster, And appearing excellent and lovely, from whatever part and under whatever character viewed, resolved to act just as I would do if I strove with all my might to be that one who should live in my time. In other words, what Edwards was resolving to do was to be the greatest Christian of his generation. And likewise, this is what actually God is calling us to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 9 through 27, which is well where we will spend our time this morning. Paul writes beginning in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Please pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, again, we pray for grace to understand your word, but but even that you would give us practical clarity to know how we can live this out as a church and as individuals. Lord, so that, that, that each one of us would be stirred up to do exactly what this what what this verse call, these verses call us to, to run as to win the race that you have placed us in. Lord, help us to be a, a church that is full of godly zeal, that really does make progress and, and, and is working to, to love you with every aspect of our being, with all of our thoughts, with all of our affections and desires, in all of our actions, cutting off the worthless things and, and putting on the best things. But for that, Lord, we need grace. Grace. And so I pray that, you, Spirit, you would be abundantly gracious to us this morning, so we'd all might be more transformed to honor you to the greatest of our ability in the year ahead. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So clearly, Paul's point here is that, that we should pursue Christ-likeness with the same fervency That athletes pursue being the best at their athletic event. Run in such a way that you may win. But his point is not to promote competitiveness between Christians, as if there's only one prize to win. All Christians, all those who are in Christ, will receive an inheritance or receive a reward, His point isn't to produce competitiveness because there's only one prize to win. Rather, what he's saying, he's exhorting us to personal self-control and discipline. The focus is on our effort, our personal effort. Trying to be the best that each one of us can possibly be for Christ. God's calling us to be elite Christians, if you will. He's not, he's not calling us to simply admire other elite Christians and to appreciate them and their work, but, but to, point, to put in our own effort to be the very best Christians we can be in this generation. Like Edwards, that each one of us would have such resolution that we would want to be the best Christian that, this gener- that our generation has. God's not content with us to merely be spectators of others. He wants us to be a spectacle. And I get that actually from 1 Corinthians 4.9. Where Paul says, we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. So God expects each one of us to be in the race, to, to be in the game. While, while the world watches on in amazement. And not just to be in the game or the race. Notice, he wants us to win. He wants us to be the best Christian we can be in our generation. Not just in our church, not just in our region, but in our generation, throughout the world. And so it's worth asking that question. Well, what does it look like, actually, to be the best Christian? this is important for us to to identify because I think the greatest threat in looking at a topic like this is for it to promote self-righteousness rather than true godly righteousness. Which would actually be running in the wrong direction, running towards the beginning rather than towards the end. See, unlike many elites in this world, the best Christians will probably not be very obvious. Now, we, we know who the best are in other aspects, right? The, the best uh, soldiers are those who, who are in the special forces, in their respective militaries. The best athletes are, are Olympic athletes or they're uh, professionals. In academics, we can turn to those who are holding tenured chairs or whose works are uh, published regularly. Managers are the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And we know what the best looks like in the world. But what, is the, what, would it, what does it really look like to be the best Christian? How would we know the best Christian if we saw them? Well, a few verses that we should consider at the outset. First of all, Matthew six one. in this passage, Jesus warns us, to beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your fathers who's in heaven. If we're striving to be the greatest Christian to prove to other people that we're the best Christian, we aren't. In other words, we're nothing. We're still at the We're still at the starting line. And he rebuked the Pharisees for trying to impress men by their righteousness. Matthew 23, verse 28, he says, so you, also, sorry, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So the, the best Christian is not the one that's trying to look like the best Christian. It's not what other people see. It's what Christ sees. And Christ told his disciples actually what true greatness in Christians actually look like. Mark ten forty three. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And what all these texts show us is that the best Christians aren't going to be obvious to us. And that's precisely because they're not trying to be obvious to us. Well, they recognize that the the real judgment for their faithfulness isn't going to come from their fellow believers or from the world. The only judgment that's going to matter is that which Christ will give them on Judgment Day. As Paul told the Corinthians just a few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning verse 2, He says, moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Sorry, this is 1 Corinthians 4. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So Paul says we don't even have the ability to judge ourselves, let alone other other people. But God will judge us. And disclose the purpose of the heart, not just the actions. But Paul does tell us in this passage, again, what should define the greatest Christians? Faithfulness. Right at the very beginning there, verse 2. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. This is in line with Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25, where the faithful servants who invested the king's resources were told well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. so the best Christian is going to be the most faithful, in other words, they're going to be the most obedient they're going to sin less they're going to be the most like Christ in their life and their character they You could say they're they're the ones that love God with all their heart, their soul, their mind and strength. Right? Inwardly and outwardly, they're consumed with wanting to live for Christ. And that's what God is calling actually each one of us in this passage to pursue. The outline before us is given there on the screen in your bulletins. Calls us to run to win, to exercise self control in all things. To remember our eternal reward. To act purposefully. And to do that, we need to conquer our flesh. Now, just for help, I've developed this acronym, RE-RACE. And the point here is that we need to live in such a way that we would not ask for a re-race after we're done. That we would not look back on our life and say, man, I left something behind. I wish I could have given more. But I just didn't realize the value of what I was pursuing. That each one of us would leave it all on the court, so to speak. All on the field. Running for Christ and not the vain things of this world. So let's look at that first point in verse 24. Run to win. Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may win. So Paul's likening the the Christian life to a race. From the the moment a person is born again, they enter into this race. Every Christian is in the race, whether they realize it or not. And that race will end when they cross the finish line and they receive their resurrected bodies. And I get this from Paul's imagery in Philippians chapter 3. We read it earlier. In fact, he uses the same words in this passage As he uses in Philippians chapter three, the words prize and win, even in the context of pursuing Christ's likeness and and, and being in a race. He says in 312, not that I have already obtained this or am already mature, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has already made me his own. I belong to him. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind him, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward God of, call of God in Christ Jesus. That upward call is referring to the resurrection. That's what he's longing for, and that's what's obvious in the passage, too. He wants to be conformed to Christ when he receives his resurrected body. And so this this race is really a race towards Christ-likeness, which won't be completed until that resurrected body is received. But in his race metaphor, Paul says that only one receives the prize. But won't all Christians receive a resurrected body? Yes, of course. But the point, again, in this metaphor is seen in the qualifying phrase. Run In such a way that you may win. Now Paul is not suggesting that again only one receives the prize. But that given the eternal worth. Given the the eternal glory of this prize. We should be running as if we, we want it. Because we're born again. His point is on how we should be running in this race. How we should be living as Christians. How seriously and energetically. We should approach the Christian life. Let's put it in other terms. Paul says, live your life as if you're trying to be the greatest Christian in your generation. Now, you can can tell people who are devoted to certain goals. Athletes train often harder than the other athletes. That's why they're elite. Businessmen, they work long hours. Academics, that they read prolifically. Right? We, we know what devotion and diligence looks like in our life and the lives of others. So the question is, is it obvious to the people who know you that you are striving to be the very best Christian you could possibly be? That that's your goal. That's what you're chasing after. That's what consumes you. And you don't need to be a pastor or a missionary for that to be true. This is something every Christian should aspire to and can aspire to. In fact, I believe, again, the first shall be last and the last shall be the first. We're going to be shocked at how many of the greatest Christians in, in generations were people we've never heard of. They weren't missionaries, they weren't pastors, they were people who just endured significant suffering. And trusted Christ and gave up and loved and worshipped. Is it obvious to the people who know you that you're you're trying to be the most faithful Christian in your generation? Or would they say that, that there's some other goal that you're striving after. There's something else that you're looking for in your life that drives you day in and day out. Let me point out to us, this is not a suggestion. Paul is giving us a command here, each one of us. We are commanded to live this way. It's a command that's given to men, women, and children, every last person who claims to follow Christ. And this shouldn't be shocking to us because we, we know what the greatest commandment is. We're called to love God with all our heart. All our soul, all our mind. We know that. Well, what does that look like? It means it looks like running to win. Not walking, not jogging, not taking our time, not shaking hands with the spectators, but running to win. Now, recognize that when we're commanded to love God with all our being, it simply doesn't mean that we're, that we're, that we're to have warm feelings when we sing or when we pray. It means to, to live like we mean it, to, to give, to sacrifice, to put forth effort, to make choices that show that he means more to you than anything else. You want to please him more than anything. And that brings us to the second point, exercise self-control in all things. He says, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. That word self-control is agonizomai, where we get the word agony from. It speaks to exerting strenuous effort. So it's not talking about approach Christianity casually. Do what's convenient for you. Find the ways you want to serve that are, that are easy, that are nice, that bring a lot of praise and glory and honor. Do what fits into your schedule. Paul says, uses the same word agonism I, in Colossians one twenty nine. For this I toil, struggling, that's the word, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He uses it again in first Timothy four ten, for to this end we toil and strive, agonism, I, because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Again, Paul's metaphor of the race is picturing the Christian life. And his point is Christianity requires effort. It requires strenuous effort, agonizing effort. You can't be a half-hearted Christian. Christianity is not for the fickle. It's not for the fragile of heart. It's not for the snowflakes. Jesus made this abundantly clear. Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Again, this is just normal, basic. This is mere Christianity. And again, Paul isn't talking about elite Christians. He's talking to everybody's in the race. If you're a Christian, you're in the race, and the nature of the, the race demands effort and self-denial. It's a race. It's not a fun run walk. First Peter four one and two, he exhorts us. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Expect this. This is what it means to be a Christian. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions. Well, what for then? If we're not supposed to live for our pleasures and our passions, what is it to live for? For the will of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. This isn't, again, elite Christianity. This is basic Christianity. So it's true that, that all it takes is faith to enter the race. But if a person isn't running in the race or if they drop out of the race, you have to ask the question, do they really want to be in the race? Or do they just want the T-shirt? Do they just want the gimmick that comes along that that or do do they want the sticker that says, I ran a half marathon or a marathon when they didn't? Do they just want the honor the glory, the purse or do they want to Run. Do they want to be in the race? Well, If they're running the wrong direction or they're walking, you have to If you went to a, if you went to an athletic event and you saw somebody walking, taking it casually, we would all we would all hang our heads in shame, especially if we knew them. God says, "I want you to run. Run like you mean it. This is a race." Olympic gold medalist and missionary Eric Liddell once said, No man who is really a man ever cared for the easy task. There is no enjoyment in the game that is easily won. It is that in which you have to strain every muscle and sinew to achieve victory that provides real joy. And those who are in the race, Paul says, exercise self-control in all things. The word self control is, is a fairly rare word. It's only used here and in uh, 1 Corinthians 7 9 in the New Testament. And it means to have control over your impulses, control over your desires. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, I'm going to master my body. I'm not going to let my desires master me. He masters himself. He subjects his body to his will. And I would say that this issue of self-control may be the greatest challenge facing Christians in the modern world, largely because of our cell phones. We live in a in an age where it's really easy to purchase things. It's really easy to have any question we have answered. We're we immediacy is just at our fingertips. It doesn't have we don't need to work very hard for many things and therefore we lack patience. And we grumble and complain all the more. We lack in other words, we lack self-control. We live in a culture that's breeding a lack of self-control. We want we want what we want now because so much of what we can have we can have now. We can order something online and it can be there that all that day. And we think that's just because I deserve it. But if we start to think like that in everything in life, it'll come out in our lack of self-control. In the second part of verse 25, Paul appeals to the the benefits to running the Christian race to win it. He says, we'll receive an, an eternal reward. Verse 25, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So the reward for uh, winning an Olympic race today is you get a gold medal, not to mention the lucrative endorsements. But in the ancient world, uh, particularly in the Isthmian Games, which were held uh, every two years in Corinth, that's probably why Paul's using this analogy here, in the Isthmian Games, the crown that was received was made of pine needles, Or in some cases, celery, withered celery at that. And historians said that this was the most coveted possession in the ancient world. A crown of celery. But even modern day Olympic medals lose their luster. If you ever had success in some athletic achievement or some other thing, Lord, after a while, those things that were meant so much to you, (laughs) diminish in their value. Every trophy, ribbon, certificate, even academic degrees. Even the greatest achievements that people of our generation, the next generation, people forget. You think about the Hall of Famers of two generations ago. Most people have no idea who they are. These are Hall of Famers, not just All-Stars. The greatest warriors, we don't know. We forget. Solomon speaks to this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes 2, beginning in verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will be the master of all for which I've toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors on the sun, because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Solomon said, I, I realize that I can give my whole life for a cause. With the greatest effort, I might even be praised in my generation, but the next generation is gone. And so is my reputation. So is my name. So is all that work spent in vanity. As John Newton wrote, fading is the worldling's treasure. All is boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting pleasure. None but zion's children know even the greatest accomplishments are are, are soon forgotten and poorly appreciated by subsequent generation moth and rust destroy our rewards thieves break in and steal our hard-earned money but the reality is none of what we give up for christ is lost none of it i mean jesus told his disciples this and in Mark ten twenty nine, he says, "Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life." But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This point is: no matter what sacrifice you make, it will be given back to you a hundredfold. And probably even more so. And that this is what Peter appeals to as well when he writes to the suffering Christians in Galatia. In fact, go ahead and turn there. 1 Peter chapter three, uh, 1. Beginning of verse 3. Read 3 through 9. Blessed to be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy causes to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, it's undefiled, it will not fade away, it is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Speaking of the resurrection there. And notice what it says. In this you greatly rejoice right, for the joy set before us Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable. Even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, in light of the fact that we're in a race, we should exercise agonizing effort to, to bring our our bodies into control, because we're, we're chas- what we're chasing after has eternal value, real substance. As the great cricketer C.T. Studd, who gave it all up to become a missionary to China, said. We only have one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. None who are spent in the service of Jesus will ever be disappointed. Right? Nobody who, who, who sacrifices greatly for the sake of Christ is going to get to the end and receive their reward and go, That's it? I gave up all this and this is it? But rather what they're going to say, oh, if only I had known, I would have given more, I would have sacrificed more. If only I had, if I had any idea of what was available to me, I wouldn't have wasted it on all those stupid, pithy things, pathetic things. Oh, how much of my life I wasted on nothingness. Because one of my friends thought that was cool. I' Not not going to say that. One well, might say, "Well, Joseph, it just sounds like a bunch of rhetoric. You're just trying to stir us up to, to be a stronger church, to be more faithful. How do you know it's really going to be that good? You haven't died. Joseph, you haven't received your reward yet. How do you know it's so good? See, I know right now that when I indulge my earthly pleasures, they bring pleasure. I know it. I feel it. I, I sense it. How do I know sacrificing these things, which I so enjoy, will be worth it in the end? Well, I know it's going to be good because the Apostle Paul, who suffered immensely throughout his life, says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, that the reward that we will receive for our faithfulness to Christ will make the most horrific pain and loss in this world seem like momentary, light affliction. For this momentary, light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that's why he exhorts each one of us to follow his example and to, to run the race set before us, to live purposefully verse 26 therefore i run in such a way as not without aim i box in such a way as not beating the air see paul knows what he's trying to achieve he's living with a purpose he knows what he's aiming at all of his life was focused on wanting to be faithful to christ in every aspect of his life loving him with all his being and helping others to do so as well he isn't living for pleasure. He isn't living for wealth. He's not living for fame. Everything is being directed toward this end that Christ would be honored in his life or in his death. Right? Philippians 1.20 Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this should be the goal of every Christian. Frankly, it should be the goal of every creature on the face of this earth. But it's only Christians who actually can achieve this, who can live truly for the glory of God and love him with all their being. They're the only ones that are granted access into this race. But since they're in the race and such a race that even angels marvel to watch. Because of that, they should run to win. Paul says in Acts 20, 24, I don't count my life of any value as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry I've received from Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. In the middle of verse 26, Paul adds a new metaphor just to make his point. And he stays within the realm of athletic competition, but now he switches from a race to boxing. And his point is that when he gets into the ring... He doesn't waste his energy just swinging his fists at the air. No, when he's in a boxing match, he's trying to strike his opponent. Every jab, every punch has a purpose. Right? He's not going to fall prey to Satan's rope-a-dope strategy. And that's what Muhammad Ali called his strategy. He would dodge and the punches of his opponent, trying to, and he'd dance around trying to get his opponent to exhaust himself By beating the air. And when he had become exhausted, Ali would then just pummel him. But Paul's punches aren't aimless. Nothing he does is without purpose for Christ. And notice who Paul's opponent is in this boxing metaphor. Who's Paul fighting? It's himself. Verse 27 conquer your flesh is the point he says i discipline my body i make it my slave so that after preaching to others i myself will not be disqualified you see that word discipline in verse 27 but i discipline my body literally it means to give a black eye and paul's point is that he punches himself I mean, he's not preaching asceticism anymore that he's encouraging every christian to go and begin a routine of running He's using a metaphor. And the metaphor conveys that he needs to subdue his flesh, not be led by his flesh. He says in Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So he literally, as he says here, makes his body his slave. He conquers it. He subdues it. He rules over his body. He doesn't let his body rule over him. His body doesn't tell him what to do. He tells his body what to do. He's not a slave to his flesh. His flesh is a slave to him. Because he's a slave of Christ. And he ceases to do his flesh. He says because he fears disqualification. The word means to, to speaks to passing a test or actually not passing a test, failing a test. In this metaphor of running a race, it speaks to being a loser, a failure. You got in the race, but you couldn't finish. When Christ assesses His work on the day of judgment, instead of hearing "well done." He fears hearing you worthless servant. That's what the word means. Worthless. To fail. The most famous Christian runner in history was Eric Liddell. Whose remarkable life was commemorated in the movie Chariots of Fire. And he's primarily remembered because he refused to run on a Sunday, which is when his race was. chose not to run in his race that he had competed for and trained for because he thought it was a violation of his Christian convictions regarding the Sabbath. And so he instead ran in a different race, the 400, which is very different than the 100, on the following day. And it was an event he hadn't trained for at all. And he not only won the 400, he actually broke the world record in that race. In fact, his split for the first 200 meters broke the world record that had been split in the 200, that had been set in the 200 by his fellow competitor named Jackson Schultz. But the real challenge in the 400 is not how you start. It's how you finish. In fact, the last 50 meters is grueling. So although Eric was way ahead of his competitors in this race, he knew he couldn't let up halfway and just coast. In fact, he ran the first three 100 meters in just over 12 seconds. And the fourth 100 meters at a blistering pace, barely over 11 seconds. And when the astonished reporters asked Eric how he did this, he responded, The secret of my success over the 400 meters is that I run the first, ran the first 200 meters as hard as I could. Then for the second 200 meters... With God's help, I ran harder. And he later spoke about his experience in the Olympics. It's been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I've been a young lad, I've had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris. And this race ends... When God gives out the medals. Therefore. In 2024 brothers and sisters. Let us run. To win. And consider what that practically is going to mean. What that's going to look like. What you should put on. What's, it, what's that. What will that require you to put off. In the upcoming year. So that this just isn't just. A nice sermon that motivates us for the next two hours, but that transforms the way we live for the rest of our lives. Because we've got to remember, this is not just a command. I mean, it is a command. It's not just a suggestion. We're called to this. And if we choose not to obey it, we're showing where our real loyalty lies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to do this, we need grace. Grace. Because we're so often discouraged, we're so often distracted, tantalized by fleeting things that that even we know don't matter. Lord, help each one of us to see what is it that's interfering with our faithfulness. And help us to know how we can come alongside one another in such a way that will encourage greater faithfulness. Lord, we don't want to be self-righteous, we want to be a help to one another. And Lord, I pray that you would cause this church to be full of the greatest generation, the greatest Christians in this generation. But we know that can only happen by grace. And so we pray for your assistance in Christ's name. Amen.